Hey, Zigzag listener, it's Manoush here. I've got a special treat for you. As I have mentioned before, over the last year, I've also been hosting another podcast, IRL, Online Life, Israel Life. It's all about the future of the internet and the online issues that affect us all. It is a podcast that I've been making with Firefox. Well, today, I am so pleased to share with you one of the most downloaded episodes of IRL ever, an investigation into how tech companies collect so much of our data for profit that they're actually changing the fundamentals of our economy and our way of life. It's being called the surveillance economy. And to even begin to change the culture of work and business, like we want to do here on ZigZag, we need to understand it. Enjoy the episode. And after you listen, go check out more episodes of IRL wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know the advice column, Dear Abby? People have spilled their guts to the namesake newspaper columnist since 1956. Millions of people have enjoyed reading the sharing of secrets and confessions and the no-nonsense counsel that Abby offers in return. Hi, everyone. This is Dear Abby. Actually, I'm Jeannie Phillips, but I'm better known as Dear Abby. Jeannie Phillips inherited the job from her mother, Pauline Phillips, and we reached out to Jeannie, or Abby, because we could use some relationship advice ourselves. It's about our relationship with this friend we spend most of our time with, the internet. Maybe this is a friend we can no longer trust. Dear Abby, I think my friend the internet is spying on me. I share everything with her. She knows what I like and what I don't like, what I buy and where I shop, where I've been and where I want to go, who I might vote for and what issues I believe in. Everything. It turns out, my friend the internet is taking my information and sharing it with other friends. They pay her for it. It sucks, because she's a huge part of my life. What do I do? Signed, It's Complicated. To It's Complicated. A close friend does not disclose the private chats that you're having. You can't trust a person like this. You can't take back what's out there. A person who mistreats you isn't a friend. Somebody who uses you is not a friend. In the future, be careful what you reveal to this so-called friend, who doesn't seem like much of a friend to me at all. Dear Abby's tough love makes it obvious. On the internet, we let tech companies get away with more bad behavior than we would ever let our real-life friends get away with. The big tech companies especially, like Google, Facebook, Amazon. And the relationships we all have with these companies have fueled an entire digital economy. An economy where companies watch everything we say and do, and then turn that knowledge into profit. This online data economy is so pervasive and so lucrative that author Shoshana Zuboff has coined a new phrase for it, surveillance capitalism. In a moment, Shoshana explains what surveillance capitalism actually is and how it's shaping and modifying our online and offline behavior. And then we'll explore if we should cut ties with these companies or if we even could cut ties if we wanted to. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is IRL. Online Life is Real Life, an original podcast from Firefox. Firefox fights for a safe and open internet that everyone can enjoy. You can support that mission by trying out the Firefox browser. Download it at firefox.com.
Shoshana Zuboff doesn't think Google, Facebook, and the others are our friends. She believes the online world they've created doesn't leave much room for pleasantries. I mean, it's right there in the title of her book. My new book is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Shoshana says these companies are not the democratizing and empowering tools they claim to be. And surveillance capitalism is spreading across our entire economy. This is a, a new era of capitalism in which it is now private human experience that lives outside the marketplace, that has been unilaterally claimed for the market, dragged into the market, renamed as behavioral data, and now traded and exchanged in a, in a new kind of marketplace that is uh, founded and operated by surveillance capitalism. Um, how did you come up with the term surveillance capitalism? Well, I, I think it comes down to this, you know, uh, reading early documents and listening to many early speeches and reading some of the early patents. And, and at this point, I'm talking largely about Google right at the beginning here. Once they discovered that they could extract more behavioral data than they needed to improve, for example, their search products and services, this extra data, it was just at that point sort of stuffed into their data logs, sitting on their servers and not being used. And through a series of events, they realized that they could use those data to predict who was most likely to click on which ad. These extra data are what I call behavioral surplus because it was more than they needed just to improve their products and services. Their desire to to hunt and capture these uh, behavioral surplus data was so intense because it, it was going to finally be the road that cracked the code to how to monetize this young internet business. So their, their desire for these data was so intense that they began to explicitly formulate the idea that they were willing to hunt and capture that data while bypassing the user's awareness. And therefore, surveillance capitalism is essentially the only thing that you can call it because it represents the social reality as well as the economic imperative. Ugh, it is very, very poetic uh, and quite sinister, actually, uh, when you describe it. Can we make clear how Facebook fits into surveillance capitalism? Sheryl Sandberg, she's a very brilliant and talented woman, and she was an extremely uh, successful executive at Google, uh, where she was involved in these very early phases of developing the logic of surveillance capitalism. So in my book, I describe Sheryl Sandberg as the typhoid Mary of surveillance <laughs> capitalism because she's really the one who began the process of dispersing, <laughs> you know, bringing the, bringing the germs from one institution to another where it gradually began to infect all internet businesses, all startups, all apps, all developers, 
and then, as we now know, has moved out from Silicon Valley across the entire economy, really to found a new surveillance-based economic order. Right. So it's not just Facebook. All the companies, majority of the companies, are part of this surveillance capitalism. Why is it so irresistible, Shoshana? I think one reason that it's irresistible, Manoush, is that in our globalized economy where um, prices have been driven down to the lowest common denominator and people can shop online and, you know, easily find the lowest price, everyone in our very modern economy is chasing margins. And we've had relatively low inflation. And so now this data surplus, this behavioral surplus, which we can sell into these new markets that trade explicitly in uh, bets on the future of human behavior. Mm. I call these behavioral futures markets. Now we see these same behavioral futures markets thriving in the retail sector, in the insurance sector, in the healthcare sector, in the entertainment sector, in the automotive sector. Just recently, the CEO of Ford Motor saying, hey, you know what? Our vehicles really are surveillance operations. We have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in our vehicles. We can collect so much data about their behavior, and then we can monetize that data. So maybe that should be Ford's new business. Can I just ask you, is there proof that surveillance capitalism does indeed Uh, work, that it increases the margins of these companies who are doing the ad targeting or selling their wares based on the information they're getting from the big tech companies? We see that, you know, Google has shot up in record time in market capitalization. Facebook has, has followed that same path. Amazon, a ruthless capitalist, but for many years, not a surveillance capitalist. But now we see with its uh, Alexa and this whole push toward ubiquitous um, sensing and recording and and so forth, with its uh, personalization effort, uh, it has now swerved into the surveillance capitalist domain. And as these companies move into this domain, you know, we see their we see their bottom line, their revenues and their profit are increasing. And slowly, what the competitive pressures have forced these companies to realize is that the most predictive data of all is the data that comes from my actually intervening in your behavior and shaping it toward those courses of action that are going to be most profitable for me because they're most profitable for my business customers. Right. So not just collecting behavior, but shaping behavior. So one example of this is Pokemon Go. It was peddled to us as all, you know, fun and games for the family, out having an adventure in the city or across the, the parks of your suburban town. But in fact, Pokemon Go was um, what, as I argue, was a kind of um, experiment in population scale behavior modification for the purposes of serving uh, the, the company behind Pokemon Go is called Niantic Labs, for serving Niantic Labs's 
uh, behavioral futures markets where it had, you know, restaurants and, and retailers and bars and pizza joints that paid to play. They said, yeah, we'll have a Pokemon gym in our place. And you heard people to my bar, to my restaurant, to my establishment, and I'll, I'll pay you per visit. Can I just ask you what, like, where does, where do we, let's, let's say someone's like, you know, ugh, Pokemon Go, that's annoying, but it's really fun and I get outside and I run around and it's a great time. How do you recommend people sort of weigh the enjoyment or convenience that they get out of these um, services versus the huge trade-offs that you have outlined? The first thing is that we all need to better grasp what the trade-offs really are. Because once you learn how to uh, modify human behavior at scale, we're talking about a kind of power now invested in these private companies. This is a really big deal because it bodes for a future kind of society that I don't think any of us would choose because it's a deeply anti-democratic kind of future mm. that, that we're on the road to here. The second thing is that it is entirely illegitimate and unjust for individuals to have to bear the brunt mm. of this situation. What has been created under the regime of surveillance capitalism is a situation where our means of social participation have been conflated with the means through which surveillance capitalists collect their data and seek to modify our behavior. We are simply the source of raw material for a vibrant, dynamic market process that serves others and does not serve us. This is a deep pathological injustice and new source of inequality that is now institutionalized in our societies that we don't really know anything about. And this is simply not okay. Shoshana Zuboff's book is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And look, if we lived in a world where the big tech companies actually told us what they do with all of our data, where they keep it, how they use it in their algorithms, maybe we wouldn't have to be as worried as Shoshana says. Maybe if we had some transparency, there'd be more of a working relationship that we could have with these companies. But they don't tell us, and we don't know. And so when Shoshana argues that big tech companies' data mining practices turns people, us, into little more than data points to be manipulated and commodified, well, it rings pretty true, and it doesn't sound so friendly. Shoshana calls Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism. Facebook is a master of this new economy. The spread of propaganda and misinformation on the platform, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and how that may have influenced an election. All these controversies and the others, it's all a result of how the surveillance economy mines and sells our data. And if we followed Dear Abby's advice to the letter, would we break up with Facebook for being an untrustworthy friend? The New York Times wrote that Facebook feels like, quote, and I love this quote, 
a cheating romantic partner who was caught betraying us and apologized, only to be caught again weeks later. So a lot of us, in some circles, are fed up with how Facebook is spying on us and adding us into the behavioral data market that Shoshana described. It won't surprise you to learn that she is not on Facebook. Of all the surveillance capitalists, Facebook is the most intimate. I have never had an account on Facebook. I don't operate on Facebook. Unlike Shoshana, though, well over 2 billion people are still on the platform. Yeah. So users don't seem ready or willing to leave. Why not? Matthew Liao has been wrestling with that question. I'm the director of the Center for Bioethics at New York University. Matthew is a philosopher. He wrote an article asking if users should quit Facebook. The title of my article is called, Do You Have a Moral Duty to Leave Facebook? Matthew joined Facebook in 2009, and he says it's been useful for him both professionally and personally. He's always felt pretty good about it. That is until recently, when I started to get worried about it, when I learned that it was about the Cambridge Analytica and how Facebook might have been involved in sort of being used to influence a political election. And that got me worried about my complicity, like whether I am contributing uh, to that, to sort of the demise of democracy. What did you decide? Are you, are you complicit with the demise of democracy? I started to realize that the situation's a lot more complex. As I learned about how Facebook was involved in uh, being used to uh, perpetrate genocide in Myanmar or, you know, the hate crimes and, uh, and also the fake news that's sort of rampant on social media generally. What you've just said would, I think, make anyone want to quit Facebook. Does this mean that you have quit Facebook? So I haven't, I haven't yet quit Facebook. I was thinking, what would Facebook have to do for me to quit it? It seems that Facebook didn't know, you know, Cambridge Analytica was using the data to try to influence a political election. I think they were just a bit too loose with their regulations regarding data privacy, but they weren't intentionally trying to influence the election. So you're arguing that it's not Facebook's fault that Facebook has been used for the kind of stuff that you just described. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's right. It's not their fault directly, but given that it's sort of taking place on their platform, I do think that they have a responsibility. At the same time, I am giving Facebook the benefit of the doubt. And partly the reason is that there are about 2 billion users on Facebook at the moment. And I think we just you know, we've never had a technology with that many users. So I can see from their perspective that, try as they might, they, it's, just, it's very hard for them to be everywhere. You sound like, oh God, this one friend, they just need to get their act together or else I cannot hang out with them anymore. That's exactly it. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> Moral duty or not? Surveillance economy or not? Plenty of us are sticking with Facebook for now. I think without a service to jump to, a lot of the current users are not going to give up the benefits that it provides. Alice Marwick is an assistant professor of communications at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
talked to a lot of people who hate the way that Facebook targets advertising, and they feel that Facebook knows things about them that they don't necessarily want Facebook to know. But at the same time, they a lot of people feel that they're addicted to Facebook or that they need to check Facebook every day or they are going to miss out on what their friends and family are doing. So there's this kind of sense that there's nothing better to use. They're, they're stuck using it. All their friends use it. This is essentially the secret to Facebook success. If you love it, it can feel irreplaceable. Uh, we know that when people go through big life transitions, like when they have a baby, for example, or when they retire, they often need a lot of social support during those time periods. And Facebook is often where people who don't necessarily have a lot of other social support in their day-to-day -day life can go to get that. If you depend on it to stay connected, why would you let that go? So when you have a technology where there's this benefit to you right in front of you, and the harms are this kind of like, meh, negligible, like I don't really know what this is, that is a trade-off that most people aren't going to make. Only the most like vociferous privacy advocates, and not even all of them, are going to opt out of using a technology simply because it violates privacy. Okay, so Matthew isn't ready to break up. Alice explains why a lot of people will never quit. Even Dear Abby admits she's hooked. Oh my God! What you really want to know? What my relationship with, with with Facebook is? I spend too much time on it. I it's the darndest thing. I I, I start looking, you know, at, at the feed that I'm getting, and it's on and on and on, and then all of a sudden, an hour has gone by, and I'm going, "What happened?" Me? Yeah, I do depend on Google and Amazon and other big tech companies for various parts of my life. But I gotta say, Facebook has always rubbed me the wrong way. You can find my professional profile on there, but I can't friend you because I've never had a personal Facebook profile. There's no connecting with old high school boyfriends or family members in far off places because I just decided Facebook wasn't for me. And for a while, people thought I was kind of a weirdo. Maybe they still do. If you really do worry about where all of this is headed and you want to minimize your part in the surveillance economy game, you can opt out. People have been known to quit Facebook and go on living happy lives. Freelance journalist Nathan Coca did so many years ago. He opted out at least as much as he could, but he admits it was hard at first. I remember there was like several weeks where I would like reflexively type in Facebook on my browser without even thinking about it. And then the page would show up and be like, oh yeah, I don't have an account anymore. And then, well, things got better. I remember I, I felt like I had more time to do other things online that I didn't before because Facebook did take up so much time. Um, and I felt like the communication I was having with my close friends was like a lot better and more meaningful and more in person. Um, than it was before. There were definitely some people that were not inviting me to events, and there were some, there, I felt like I had less idea what was going on socially in graduate school. I didn't know who, who was seeing who. I didn't have the same level of access to gossip as before, but actually that, that was, I, I found that I don't really need that. Nithin didn't miss Facebook. And in 2016, he actually took things a step further. He tried to quit Google. Quitting Google took me over a year because there's just so many different Google services I was using and I had to find alternatives for every single service and like move my information over from those different services to an alternative. Um, and it was far, far more challenging than Facebook ever was and required 
I can't imagine how many hours of just testing and trying different tools and just trying to find out, figure out ways to like move information. And Nissen's pulled it off mostly. He lives an online life without the biggest social media site and without the biggest internet services company. He is proof that if you really want to quit, it is possible. I think the benefit is now I control all my data. I know where all my information is. And I've been able to like learn a lot about how challenging it is for these companies, other alternatives to compete with Google because they have such huge market share. And it kind of shows how like the internet is no longer this open space for people to develop different tools and ideas. It's really being monopolized by a few big giants. Throughout this episode, I have called out the big tech companies and Facebook in particular for their data practices. Why? Well, because they're the biggest. It might also be time for these companies to follow our lead and maybe reach out to Dear Abby for advice on how they can do better. Dear Abby, last year, a bunch of my users, sorry, uh, friends, confronted me. They accused me of taking their personal information and sharing it with strangers for my own personal gain. I've admitted that I've made mistakes. I said I'm sorry many, 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 many times. How can I prove to them that I can be a good friend? Signed, Saving Face. To Saving Face, treat them as you would want to be treated. Let your actions from now on speak for themselves. That's how you'll be judged. Firefox is with you. Instead of asking what we can do with technology, they're asking what we should do with technology. The Firefox browser is safe and includes private browsing and tracking protections. You can also install an extension called Facebook Container. It can limit some of the data that Facebook collects about you and even reduce micro-targeting. Get it for free at mozilla.org slash Firefox slash Facebook Container. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is IRL, Online Life, Israel Life, an original podcast from Firefox. I'm going to, I hope you're okay with this. I'm going to label your behavior as leader of the rebellion. I'd be very proud. I'd be very proud to carry that banner, Manoush. (laughs) 